Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Thinking Sideways. Brought the aliens. You must unlearn what you have learned. I don't know. Stories of things we simply don't know the answer to. Hey, everybody. Uh, as you know from yesterday's episode about the Daytona Beach serial killer, we got a chance to speak with reporter Christine Pelisak about Lonnie Franklin Jr., a.k.a. the Grim Sleeper. And Christine recently published her book, The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central, which tells the story of serial killer Lonnie David Franklin Jr., who killed, believe, uh, it's believed, between 13 to 25-plus women between the years of 1985 and 2007. The book is available at most ebook and brick and mortar book retailers. And if you want, you can go to Christine's website, Christine Pelisek dot com at c h r i s t i n e p e l i s e k dot com you read an overview of the book and she's also got a direct link on there to amazon if you want to purchase it yourself it's a great read i enjoyed it and i i'd recommend that you pick up a copy but anywho as usual we like to share these interviews with you typically since so much of the conversation doesn't make it into the episode uh, one quick thing, bear in mind that we talked over Skype, so you may hear some odd bits of audio from time to time. We've corrected as much as we could, but we hope you enjoy hearing the conversation with Christine as much as we enjoyed having it. Let's roll that interview.
if you don't mind, can you introduce yourself to all of our listeners? Sure. My name is uh, Christine Pelisek. I'm a senior writer with People Magazine, and I'm the author of The Grim Sleeper. And uh, just, you know, in, in as much detail or as little detail as you want, can you kind of give us a, an overview of The Grim Sleeper case? Sure. The Grim Sleeper case pretty much started in, in the 1980s in South Los Angeles. Um, he was a serial killer active. He, he started in 1985, and he killed seven women, from, and uh, he had a survivor who survived uh, in November of 1988, and then he possibly took a 13-and-a-half-year break and then resumed killing again in 2002 and then 2003 and 2007. And uh, he was finally caught in 2010 through familial DNA testing. And he was uh, the longest operating serial killer west of the Mississippi. He was one of the most prolific serial killers in Los Angeles history. His his, uh, main targets were uh, poor, young um, black women. Uh, Most of them had drug addictions. Um, A few of them had uh, prostitution arrests. Um, he shot them in the chest with a 25 caliber, the bulk of his victims. And uh, his later victims, he strangled a few of them. And the women, you know, basically ranged in age from 15 to 35. Uh, one of the things I was, I'm kind of curious about, and I, Steve gave me a copy of your book to read, and I haven't been able to start it yet, but I did read some of your articles in LA Weekly about him. Oh, now I just lost my question. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, did he ever confess to any of these things? Did he ever own up to it? And did he ever confess to any others outside the eleven killings that he did? I don't. It doesn't sound like he. No. Did. So he never. No, even, he never confessed. Not even to the ones that he was convicted for. No, no, not at all. He didn't, and. Um, I- I know that some of, you know, the police actually listened to his conversations he had with some family members and, you know, he denied having, you know, anything to do with the crimes. You know, he denied that he made excuses. They found a lot of photos in his home after he was arrested. They went and they did a three-day search. Yeah, like 180 photos, right? Well, actually, they found more than that. They They found, like, dozens and dozens of videotape as well as photos, and they actually weaned them down because some of them are duplicates. So they weaned it down to 180, but they found, like, you know, way more photos. And so when they did the search in his house, um, you know, family members and friends, you know, asked him, like, what about these photos? And he basically said that because he was a car mechanic, he alleged, he he told them that basically the photos were left, you know, in cars and he just happened to have them. And that's why, like, he didn't admit that he was taking photos, even though he definitely had a bunch of cameras and things like that. So... No, he didn't admit anything. I mean, all he admitted to his friends was that he's a flanderer. I mean, he admitted that he had a lot of girlfriends. He bragged about having numerous girlfriends. I mean, he was married uh, at the time when he was caught. He had been married for 32 years. He was a grandfather. and But he told some of his friends that, you know, he had a number of girlfriends over the years. And then he also, you know, picked up girls on the streets and, you know, he had nicknames for them and Stuff like that. So he was he was quite a bragger when it came to you know his love life. Besides you know the murders, of course, yeah. he didn't talk about those. What what drew you to this case? I mean, and what and at what point did you kind of decide to really invest as much time and energy into it as you did? I mean, I 
personally would have a really hard time <laughs> with a case like this. Well, I mean, it just kind of fell um, in my lap, really. I mean, I found out about it through the coroner's office. I used to go over to the coroner's office all the time, and I talked to the uh, the coroner there and asked him, uh, you know, if there was any cases over the weekend, you know, that I should write about. And one of the times I was over there, he basically said that the coroner's office had started the serial killer task force to look into these body dumps, which were, you know, basically women men that were found dead around South Los Angeles and all actually all over LA County. And some of the women were found in parks, some of them in, you know, fields, some of them in alleyways, some of them in garbage dumpsters. And they found 38 women between 2002 and 2006. And so the coroner's office decided to look into it to see if there was any, you know, links, if there was a serial killer. And I mean, they tried talking to the police and a lot of the police were just saying, mind your own business, you're the coroner. You know, you don't need to worry about, you know, homicides, things like that. And so he actually told me how they were looking into this. And so I asked him, you know, how it was going. And he said that, you know, they they were overwhelmed by so many cases. I mean, at the coroner's office, they have like, you know, 10, 30, you know, up to 30 cases a day. You know, so there were all the investigators were really busy and they didn't have time to look into these cases. And so I kept bothering him about it, just asking him, like, what's the progress? You know, have you found anything? And he said, you know, they really hadn't been able to start looking at it. And so I was like, let me look at it. You know, let me, I'll look, you know, look into it. And he was like, no. And, but finally, after a few months, he actually gave me the list of 38 women. And so at that point, you know, I didn't know anything. And, you know, so I just started calling all the law enforcement agencies because the women were found all over LA County. So there was like Downey police, you know, LAPD, LA County law enforcement agencies that had some of these cases. And so I started calling them all to see if there was any connection, if they thought there was any connection, if, any of the cases had been solved. And I mean, in some of the cases, I mean, they had a case where a woman was found uh, burned to death in, in a car, and it turned out that she was with a John, and she had died of an overdose, and he didn't want to take her to the hospital or anything, so he actually started the car on fire and tried to burn her because he was hoping that his DNA wouldn't be left on her. Well, there you, you go. Know, so, <laughs> That's a great solution. Yeah, no, and so there's... There was other cases, actually, a couple of the cases were like natural causes and, you know, things like that. And some of them were, you know, the boyfriend killed the woman, you know, sort of thing. But as I was going along, I got to the 37th case and it was Princess Berthamue and she was a 15-year-old runaway from Inglewood, which is kind of next to um, Los Angeles in, in L.A. County. And uh, I ended up finally talking to the Inglewood detective that was working on the case and he told me that her case, which was in 2002 was linked to a case in 2003, and that was an LAPD case. And those two cases were linked to a series of 25 caliber murders back in the 80s. And so he was the one who actually told me about this link. And then I found out, I ended up writing a story about it, but, you know, like the police basically didn't tell anyone in the community. Like no one knew, like none of the family members knew. I mean, I was sort of the first one well, I was the first one to tell some of the family members that their daughters had been killed by a serial killer. And so I ended up, you know, just, I kept looking into it. And then basically about a year later, um, I found out that the killer had struck again in, in 2007. And at that point, the LAPD um, decided to like admit, you know, that there was a serial killer out there. And then they ended up, they had a task force going and, the city council put a $500,000 reward looking for information. And 
I don't know. I mean, I was just, it was something that I was fascinated with and I was hoping that they would, you know, catch the guy. And I mean, one of the victims, her and I would drive around the neighborhoods together, you know, trying to find the house because there was one survivor in 1988 and he picked her up at a liquor store and then told her she was going to a party. He said he was going to drive her to the party, but instead he stopped at, he said it was his uncle's house, but the police believe he went into the house, got a gun, went out and shot her about two minutes later. And she actually was able to, back in 1988, she took the detectives back to this house, which was owned by a guy named Otis White, and it turned out that it was three doors down from where Lonnie Franklin, the killer, lived. And so her and I, on a a number of occasions, like drove around the streets looking for the houses, you know, the house. And uh, so, you know, on a number of occasions we did that, and she was like, there's definitely, it was a side door, and it was white, and, you know, there's like a zillion houses that you know, have an entrance to the side and that are white. So, you know, we went around and we did some interviewing together as well as I tried to find out my own stuff. And I got a lot of people contacting me like psychics. And I had a few people that believe that their friend or their husband were the killer. And I ended up getting like DNA from them to take it to the, you know, to take to the police. So it was kind of crazy at times. <laughs> yeah. Now, now the victim that you were just talking about—that's Miss Washington, correct? Yeah, Anitria Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's she was the the sole survivor. Um, and that was what year was that that attempt made? That was the eighties, right? It was it was November November nineteen eighty eight. Okay. You know, so that that does lead us into uh, another question. You know, she's the only surviving witness. But what I've always wondered about. When I was reading uh, about Lonnie and, of course, then, you know, the other serial killer cases is, and, and this is just your opinion is really what I'm after here, but how is it that nobody saw him? Like, there was no witnesses to what he was doing. Well, um, and he, it ended up that, I mean, uh, he had his trial last year and he got convicted. And during the death penalty, another woman came forward and said that she was also a victim of his. So there's actually possibly two survivors and she actually said that she was um, at a bus stop, and it was about 10 o'clock, because a lot of the victims, like Anitri, it was late at night. With this woman, Laura Moore, it was late at night. She was at a bus stop. He drives up, you know, to, he drove up to both of them and just said, hey, you know, could I give you a ride? And Anitri actually talked to him for a few minutes before she got into the car, and Laura Moore actually turned him down, and he just kept going around and going around until finally she got in the car with them. And then he takes them right to an alley. And I mean, a lot of the the victims, you know, were picked up late at night. And I think that's why there wasn't any witnesses. I mean, there was one witness, alleged witness, actually, for the Bernita Sparks. She was one of the victims. And one woman said she thought that she saw Bernita Sparks that night getting into the car with somebody. But, you know, a lot of them was like, I think the only reason I think a lot of it was that it was late at night. And there wasn't a lot of people out on the street. Yeah, I think also. I think that's why. And I mean, he would, and also too, I mean, he knew what he was doing. So, you know, he's going to be stealthy, right? He's not going to do it when there's a hundred people around, you know, he's going to make sure it's late at night. And I mean, when the police were following him around, you know, after they got the familial DNA from the, the son, the match with the son, they followed him around and he left his home one night at like three o'clock in the morning. And he went to 42nd and Western, which was like kind of a a popular prostitution hangout. And there was two girls standing on the street and it was really secluded. And the detectives, there was this undercover 
cop following him and he made a point to say to the detectives he's like I'm afraid that he's going to find out that I'm following him because there was like literally no one on the street so he picks times when there's not a lot of people around you know that's why I think there's you know no witnesses do you think and then he brings them to alleyways and there's not a lot of people hanging out in the alleyways at four o'clock in the morning do you think their line of work had something to do with the lack of witnesses as well that maybe you know people that were around were other other you know women who were prostitutes or whatever and weren't paying so much attention to the fact that you might just get in a car with a john well i think it was um i mean some of the girls definitely had prostitution records but i mean some of them like i mean deborah jackson she was gay and she was just taking a bus you know to her home like mm -hmm. where she was living so how he came across her it's it's hard to say i mean Laura Moore was picked up at a bus stop, you know, and Etria was at a liquor store, you know, so it's hard to say whether any of the girls were like on a stroll because a lot of the girls like you have to remember back then it was like the crack cocaine era. And so there were a lot of the girls weren't like technically prostitutes like they'd walk up, you know, down the street, some guy would pull up and he'd be like, hey, do you want to smoke some crack? And, you know, the girls were so dope, doped up. They're like, sure. And they just jump in the car and then you drive off. It wasn't like standing on a corner with 10 girls. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So, uh, so, so it, it appears then he did actually probably hook some of them in by offering them drugs instead of cash. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, I think he definitely did that. And I mean, he, you know, according to what the police told me, I mean, he didn't smoke and he really didn't drink very much himself, but he knew that, you know, he could lure girls in with drugs. So I think that that's exactly what he was doing. I mean, I know that he was also, you know, paying some girls because there was a videotape that the prosecutor showed during his trial. And he videotaped this girl and she didn't, it looked like she had no idea he was videotaping her. And she kind of comes out of this bathroom and she's got a t-shirt on and jeans. And then she takes her jeans off and, you know, he's taking, he tells her to take her top off. So she takes her top off and he's taking you know, he's taking photos of her and then they do like a sex act. And then he sort of just puts some money on this table, just really like nonchalantly just puts some money on the table. And then she just sort of, while she's talking to him, sort of reaches her hand up, grabs the money, puts it in her pocket. They talk for a few minutes and then he, he turns off the video when she goes into the bathroom and then that's that. So yeah, he was definitely paying some of the women. Uh, so he, uh, he didn't videotape himself committing any of the murders, did he? <laughs> no, they didn't find... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they didn't find, but they found. So I, most of the videos actually, he wasn't in the videos. It was mostly women in the videos, like doing, you know, dancing for him or touching themselves or whatever the scenario was. And you could see his hand, but they only had like one or two videos where he actually was in it. So he was pretty. He was smart. Were the one where were, were the most of the women in the videos were they his victims or were they women who turned out to be found <clears throat> alive and well? Well. Some of them, like they did, they never identified the bulk of them, uh, but they did find photos of. They found a photo of Anitra Washington, who was a survivor. They found a photo of Janethea Peters, who was his victim in in January first, two thousand seven, the last known victim. And they also found the ID, like a driver's license and a student identification of two women that went missing in two thousand five, Ayala Marshall and Rolina Morris, both women went missing right near they were known to hang or hang out around franklin's house on around 81st and western and they found their identification 
tucked in an envelope along with a Janisha Peters photo in this mini fridge in his garage. But none of so, the video was of any of the women that were confirmed his victims. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, and so I, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and this relates to, to both Lonnie and the, uh, the Daytona Beach serial killer, is their hunting grounds is the term I'm going to use and, and how far they roam from essentially their home base. Because Not very Lon- far. Well, Lonnie, yeah, he didn't seem to go very far afield, which so- feels weird to me. I mean, he, Sounds what, counterintuitive. like a mile or three? Is that about how far he roamed? I think the far- farthest victim was about five miles away. But, but yeah, no, he, he operated, he hunted in his own backyard. And that's like, most serial killers do that. I mean, they had, um, back in the eighties in South Los Angeles, there was, um, you know, six serial killers operating at the same time and they were able to identify all of them actually. And all of them lived in South Los Angeles. I mean, Chester Turner was one of the serial killers and he hunted like literally within two blocks of where his mother, where he lived with his mother, you know, they like familiar territory, you know, they don't want to be surprised. They want to know, Lonnie was a garbage man and he knew the alleyways, like he knew the dumpsters of South Los Angeles because that's where he worked, right? So they want to have, they want to feel comfortable. So that's why most serial killers actually operate, you know, in the same area where they dump their bodies. I was always kind of wondering too if, if one of the reasons they do it is they're just trying to clean up the neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that. I don't mean that in a harsh, judgmental way. But I mean, you know, seriously, is that possibly a motivator for some of these guys that they're uh, they don't well, really approve of that activity and they'd like to see it sort of discouraged? Well, I mean, obviously that was the case for Lonnie. I mean, he considered. I mean, it's obvious he considered the women trash, right? And so yeah. he dumped their bodies in trash. You know, so he considered them trash. You know, and his wife was there. Yeah, and dumpsters, and his wife was very religious, so he maybe there was something for him. He, you know, I think he had this like compulsion. You know, I think that he couldn't control himself. I mean, he had there was he was always after women. You know, he was like, like addicted to women, and I think that in his case, I think that you know he also had this deep seated hatred. And you know where it came from, it's hard to say because it seemed like he had a good relationship with his mother and his sister. You know, so it's hard to say exactly why, how he ended up, you know, hating women so much. But, you know, I think that's what he thought. I think he thought he was cleaning the streets. Yeah. That's crazy. Kit, so let's back up a little bit because um, I realize we haven't asked this question yet. <laughs> um, where did the name The Grim Sleeper come from? Uh, my editor and I made it up. Oh. That good one. Score. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, she was, when we, I mean, when she, um, when I told her about the story, we were writing the story and she actually, she was like, you know, we have to name him. And I I didn't want to name him actually. I was like, no, I don't think that's right to do that. And she said, yes, I think, you know, you should and everything like that. And we decided that it was a, a good idea just because, you know, a lot of the serial killers out there, like Son of Sam and, you know, all these guys, Zodiac, I mean, I think that they're known because they were nicknamed, right? So everyone knows about them. And I wanted, in this case, I didn't want this case to go away. You know, like all of a sudden you get media attention and then the next day no one, nobody cares. And so our hope was that by nicknaming him, people would remember the name and they couldn't forget about the case. 
And so her and I started, you know, trying to go through different names. And she was like, Ripper Van Winkle was one of the ones she was in. And we were like, no, 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 no. And I was like, what? And then I was like, what about Grim Sleeper because of the break in the case? She was like, yes. I'm like, no, no, no. No, I was kidding. I hate that name. And then she's like, no, no, no. We're calling him that. Too bad. <laughs> uh, you should have called like, too bad. Exactly. Was it? I can't tell when you're done talking when you just dropped out because of the, because of Skype. <laughs> hopefully you're hopefully you're done. Uh, I was going to say you should have named it the Tooth Fairy after the uh, serial killer in Red Dragon. Ugh. I don't know if you ever read that book or not. No, but I heard about him actually. Yeah, yeah, but the Tooth Fairy. What was great about that is they called him the Tooth Fairy, and it really made the killer angry. And then he sort of uh, contacted the reporter. Uh, well, in, in a Ooh. kind of brutal way. So uh, it's probably good that you did. Probably yeah. good that you, you didn't actually make it mad. Here's really what we're getting at. Yeah. Um, so with Lonnie now, um, <laughs> Lonnie took uh, what was it a 14 year break? Is that correct? Well, I mean, at first they thought it was a 13 and a half year break, but then they lived. They found a victim in 2000, so it was it was it was 10 years now, as opposed to like 13 and a half. It might keep narrowing too. Well, I was that, so. That was my question: Is you know we hear about stories like Lonnie, where somebody is supposedly taken a break. Do you think that he actually took a break, or do you think that it just happened to be that we haven't been able to to draw the links from found victims to him, or victims that weren't found? See, that that'd be my guess. <laughs> what do you well, think? the detectives definitely don't think that he took a break. Um, they think that, I mean, because two of the victims, Bernita Sparks and Janisha Peters, were found in dumpsters by, um, you know, homeless people looking for, like, recyclables and stuff like that. And so um, there was a good chance that they would have ended up in a landfill. So the detectives think that a lot of his victims ended up in landfills because they think, like, he's known to have killed 15 women, but they think it's probably closer to 30 and that some of the women, you know, are in landfill, you know, landfills right now. So I don't know. Like, I think that, I mean, I know that there was a case in 2000. So, I mean, his last known victim was in 1988. And then there was a case in 2000. During the 90s, it was also a time when his kids would have been teenagers, Mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, maybe they were like, Dad, what are you doing leaving the house at 3 o'clock in the morning? Like, where are you going? Like, I don't, you know, I don't know if there was something going on in his family life that, you know, stopped him from doing it. Because, you know, like, with, for example, like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, I mean, he would stop at times, too, you know, when he was happy in his relationship. So I think sometimes he's like serial killers, they might stop if they're happy in their relationships. Like maybe, you know, Lonnie was happy, in, you know, with a, a girl he was dating, you know, who knows. But the cops don't don't actually think that he did. But, you know, it's hard to tell. So I don't I'm not really sure. But he did. You know, he, he was definitely I mean, there was a flurry right from 1985 to 1988. Then all of a sudden. There's not a lot going. But then again, in 1988, they had a suspect, a sheriff deputy deputy named Ricky Ross. So maybe he decided to lay low because they were focused on this, you know, deputy. He was probably hoping. It's hard to say. Probably hoping the deputy would like take the fall for it, you know, and it never wound up happening. Well, the deputy actually got arrested and charged with the murder, like these three uh, unrelated murders. But the detectives actually thought that he was responsible for the. 25 caliber murders because he admitted that he owned a 25 caliber gun. But it ended up that the ballistics didn't match with this gun that they found in his car and the, the bullets that were pulled out of these three prostitutes that were killed around the same time Anitria was attacked. So they ended up dropping the case, but the detectives actually 
believed up until I talked to one of the detectives back in 2006, and he still believed it was Ricky Ross, who was the deputy, you know? So I think that, you know, Lonnie for a while there probably thought that, you know, they were focused on somebody else, so he was going to lay low. Uh, now, Lonnie, Lonnie would eventually get caught because of familial DNA, but did they ever find his gun, that, that 25 caliber that he was using on all these girls? I don't remember seeing anything that ever actually got found. Well, they didn't find the gun that he used um, for the victims from 1985 to 1988. But when they searched his home, they found the gun that was used to kill Janisha Peters, the 2007 victim. Oh, okay. And that gun was also used. They found after like they arrested him and charged him with the 10 murders, they ended up finding out that he was also responsible for this 1984 murder found out they found the gun and basically traced to Sharon Dismuke the bullet that was pulled out of her. So the gun that they found in one of his Janisha Peters. So they did find one of the guns and they found a receipt for the gun they think was used to kill the other victims in the eighties, but they never found that gun. Okay. Okay. Um, now, uh, also when I was doing the reading, I know that there's, there's a lot of controversy around the use of, familial DNA and what what is uh, what is the the uproar about that I, I personally don't get it well I think that you know a lot like ACLU and you know civil liberty organizations and uh, civil rights organizations you know they uh, believe it's an invasion of privacy and they think that it unfairly targets minorities you know because there's more minorities like African-Americans, Hispanics, et cetera, in prison. So they're saying that it fairly targets that population. Like England did a study many years ago, and they found that, like, if you're for the familial DNA, because as you know, like Lonnie, they, they had his DNA, but Lonnie had never gone to prison, so he had never been swabbed. So that's why they didn't know who he was, but they knew he was matched to the victims in the 80s and the victims in the, two th in the 2000s because of, um, they found saliva on many of the women's breasts. And so they knew he was, you know, he, there was one killer, but because he wasn't in any felon data bank, they couldn't find him. So that's why they decided to use that familial DNA. And it was the first time actually in California, actually in the U.S., that they used familial DNA testing to find a serial killer. And they checked it in 2008. And how it goes with the familial DNA, I mean, it had been... Um, England had been using it for many years, and basically they said that if you're a felon, there's a 40% chance that you're going to have like a male relative, like a cousin, an uncle, a brother, a father, who's a felon. So if you're not in the data bank, there's a 40% chance that you're going to have a relative who's in, in the data bank. That makes sense. And me. so, yeah, and so that's why they did it in 2008, and it came back nothing. And then they did it two years later. And the felon data bank had grown 400,000. And so they did it again. And Lonnie's son, Christopher, had been charged with um, carrying a weapon. And he pled guilty. And as a result of his plea, he got swabbed. And that was in 2009. So he was in the system for geez, just like close to a year, you know, before they did that second DNA swab. And it came back as a match to him. But he was... They knew it wasn't him because he would have been about two years old when the murder started. So they knew, he, right? So they knew he had to be, you know, he, they knew he was related to the killer. And so they actually looked for any relative and there was an uncle. Well, they thought there was an uncle in Rancho Cucamonga, but they ended up checking 
checking it out and finding that there was no relation. And then they found out that his father, Lonnie, lived like on 81st and Western, which was like at the epicenter of where all the murders took place. And so that's why they ended up, you know, following, you know, Lonnie. And after three days, they got his DNA off a pizza slice. He went with his girlfriend to a uh, pizza parlor. I and uh, they, Yeah, I read about that in one of yeah. the articles. Yeah. On the LAPD cop impersonated a waiter or something like that. Bus boy and went around and had like a bus bin and half the stuff was Lonnie's and the other half was, you know, just people at the table. And it was like a kiddie's, you know, birthday party for kids and kids were running around eating pizza. So the cop, you know, just went and grabbed his dishes and they ended up, they grabbed, he had a, cake, a plate with a piece of cake on it. And they ended up, they were able to get the um, swab from a hardened piece of cheese from the pizza. Nice. Yum. <laughs> um, so did I hear you correctly um, refer to some psychics? That were involved in this case. Well, I had um, when when the story broke in two thousand. I did another story. I did one in two thousand six, and I did one in two thousand eight, and that's when we nicknamed him the Grim Sleeper. So I ended up getting a lot of calls from people, and I want you know a few of them I got were from psychics, and one of them was this woman who believed that you know she knew who the killer was, and he was killing women. He was a a really good looking guy, and she said he was like a cross between. What was his name? That um, what's his name? Uh, the the tennis, not the tennis player. You know, she said he was a cross between Tiger Woods and I forget somebody. I forget who who the other person was. She said he was a cross between, and she said that you know Arthur he was a lawyer. Ashton. His wife didn't know. Oh, damn it. <laughs> his wife didn't know. I know. Now I'm gonna have to look through my book to see what I what I wrote. For some reason, I can't remember. But yeah, so you know, I had a few people that did that. I had this one woman who contacted me and said that. You know, her she believed her husband was a killer, but she didn't really have any good reason. Yeah, I think she just she just kind really? of felt he was shady, wasn't it? Something like that. Well, I mean, she just it was more of like this gut feeling. She said, and she was like, "I just want to make sure." And I said, "Well, just you know, talk to the police." And she's like, "No," and she was afraid that the police would basically, you know, like target him and whatever. And so. She was like, if I get DNA, will you give it to the cops or test it? I'm like, well, we don't test DNA at the LA Weekly. <laughs> and I said, but I, I guess. <laughs> and I said, I guess we, I could give it to the police. And I just thought, you know, I was getting a lot of calls. Like, you, you end up, and I talked to so many people who I thought they were like, oh, my God, it's so-and-so. And you're completely convinced. You're like, oh, my God, it, it's got to be this person. And then all of a sudden, the next thing out of their mouth, mouth is that, you know, the FBI is tapping their phone and the CIA is knocking on their door. And you're like, oh, for God's <laughs> yeah. sake, you had me for, the, you know. So this woman, I didn't think I'd get a call back. And then and she call, called me back and she was like, can we, you know, meet up? You know, I have his, you know, DNA. And so I ended up meeting up with her and she told me, she she passed me. It was like a, James, not a, like a Jason Bourne thing. And she's, I met her on a bench near where she worked and. She sat down next to me and passed me this bag. And in there, she was like, it's a cup. And inside, there's like the napkin. And she said it was a napkin. And she said there was semen on it. And I was like, oh, my God. I thought it was supposed to be like a saliva sample. And she's like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. And so I ended up calling the detective who was the main detective on the case. And I said, this is what I have. And he, all of a sudden, there was like complete silence on the line. <laughs> and I'm like, what, do you mean, what am I it was like 100 degrees in L.A. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? Can I drop it off? He's like, I'm out of town. He's like, put it in your fridge. Uh, oh, my and I'll, God. And I'll, you know, do the LAPD the next morning or whatever. And I'm like, put it in my fridge. He's like, yeah, put it next to your, like, veggies. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> 
So uh, I ended up putting it in a ketchup and mustard. Was it at least like sealed in a Ziploc bag, I hope, so it didn't stink up the, your fridge? No, there wasn't any Ziploc bag, no. Oh, Christ, really? <laughs> oh, God. Um, one of the things that I, so I was wondering about is I noticed that a lot of the girls, at least in the neighborhoods, I, I, in the writing, they're referred to as strawberries. What is that and where exactly does that come from? Do you know? Well, I knew, like... I know that it was a police term term used in the 80s, and it was basically women, you know, who exchanged um, sex for drugs. But I don't know why, how they got strawberry out of it. Like, I just know that's what the term means. But I, I don't know why, like, who came up with strawberry. Okay. I, I was just curious. It just it struck me as a bit strange. Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah, I know. So let's talk a little bit about the task force that was formed in the 2000s to, that eventually would help catch Lonnie. Now, normally, task force are created by police departments, and they, they stir up a lot of dust, and then nothing seems to really come from it. Why was this particular task force, the 800 task force, you think, uh, so successful at what, what they did? Well, I... I think they were success. I mean, at the end of the day, they were successful. I mean, the detective who is the supervisor in the case, he told me from the very beginning that the case was going to be solved through DNA. I mean, these guys bent over backwards. You know, there was like seven or eight, you know, task force members and they bent over backwards. I mean, they went through the murder books again. You know, they literally followed hundreds of people, you know, around like witnesses from the eighties. And, you know, they were getting like hundreds of calls themselves, like thousands of calls. And they were following people around, like obtaining, you know, DNA swabs and things like that. Like they actually went to Georgia. There was one, um, they thought that there was a minister that might be involved. And so they actually flew to Georgia and he was in a crypt and they actually opened up the crypt and got a DNA sample, you know, cause they were, it was mostly about getting DNA, right? You know, because it's like, it, this case was like trying, you know, it's fine, trying to find a needle in a haystack. I mean, how difficult, you know, it's a body dump left there, you know, back in the 80s and even 2002, 2003, 2007. I mean, no witnesses, you know, the bodies were dumped. They were killed somewhere else and then dumped in the alley. I mean, it was a miracle that they actually were able to find him and so soon, too. I mean, a lot of the cases, look at what happened with the Green River Killer. It was like 20-something years before they finally caught him. Oh, Same know. with BTK. I, I remember, yeah, too, I was, I was around for living in the area, and a lot of people were very angry after all those years, and they still hadn't caught the guy. And I'm going, you know, it's just like you said, though, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, it's, it's expecting a lot, really, to help. And it's really lucky that guy's kid got busted the year before they they, were, they nabbed him. Well, I don't think they ever, if if it wasn't for that familial DNA and that yeah. his son busted, I don't think they ever would have caught. Yeah. I think it was just too difficult. You know, it was just it was just too hard. They were really they, they were really lucky. I think they were pretty shocked themselves. Yeah, I'm sure that that was you know somebody delivering the golden goose. Well, and all these guys, a lot of them were um, retiring. So this was like their last big case, right? So this was kind of the the big case of their career. And to be able to solve it, you know, it was just what a great way to retire, right, on that note. That's pretty awesome, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you knew these guys. Did they have a big party when the, the whole thing was over? Um, well, they probably did, but they didn't invite me. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, I actually, I did go to, uh, I did, you know, at first my relationship with them, it wasn't very good, but I think as the time went by, you know, like I'd call them up and, you know, give them, you know, this person called me, did you check them out? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, we already checked that person out or whatever. So I, you know, and they'd have, you know, police uh, press conferences all the time and I'd go there and, you know, talk to them. So I think they'd begrudgingly were okay with me. And then, so when they um, retired, I was invited to um, two of their, two of the detectives retirement parties. So I thought that was pretty good. And I'm still in contact with uh, a couple of the detectives still. Nice. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joe, do you have yeah, so, any other questions? Uh, so, uh, well, you're you're with people now. You're not in the L.A. beat so much anymore. So you're, I, I was just going to ask just by chance, are you following any serial active serial killers right now? Well, not. Well, I, I'm working on a, a case, actually. Um, well, not working on, but there was a guy, there was another serial killer, but he was um, he's in jail right now pending trial. And he was a serial killer who murdered one of, um, well, there was a girl that was dating actually Ashton Kutcher at the time back in 2001. And he lived in Chicago and killed, allegedly killed a young girl there and then moved to Los Angeles and then killed three women here. And so he's sitting on, um, in County jail waiting for his trial, which is probably going to come in November, Mm. but I'm not, there's a few cases like the Long Island serial killer. That's one that I've done a lot of work on, you know, that one, but that's not in L.A. I I do a lot of L.A. cases, but I don't, there's one, actually, there is one case, but it's not a murder case. It's um, this case called the Teardrop Rapist, and there's this rapist who'd been raping women, like Hispanic women, and he's also Hispanic himself, and he had been raping women since the 80s, almost as prolific as Lonnie Franklin. He's he well, he raped over 50 women from like the late eighties and they still haven't caught him and they've tried familial DNA testing and everything. And he's still on the loose. And his last victim was a couple of years ago. Hey, sorry. There was a pause there. We were all just kind of, yeah, Yeah. I don't like to think about about that. I just keep hoping that that guy is going to run into somebody who's got a big old knife or a gun on her. That would just end the whole thing. That'd be kind of nice. But, that actually, well, he was just, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I've actually just recently read uh, an article, I can't remember where this woman was, of some guy who met a woman through some website and he came over. It was very obvious that he intended to, to end her life and she turned the tables on him. And, you know, he's dead in the ground and they can't figure out, I can't remember who his name is now. It was, I just read it the other day. And they, she took him out, and they were like, "Oh yeah, no, he had shovels, he had stuff, he was, he was going to remove your body." Mm. It so it sometimes that happens, Joe. Well, I know it's a, it, it warms my heart to hear about it too. <laughs> what they call it, the yeah. hero hooker or something like oh, that? Yeah. I can't remember. It was really the name wasn't wasn't. I heard about that case too. I think it was back east, right? Maybe around Cleveland or somewhere. And the girl, yeah. he came over to her house and he jumped her, and then she had. I forget what she had, and she just beat him, you know, beat him to a pulp. And then they ended up finding all this in the back of his trunk. He had all this, you know, like ropes and all this other stuff. And then they they found out that he was responsible for like three or four other murders. Yeah, and they they couldn't figure out how he was funding his cross-country tour of killing because he just, he was like a night security guard or something like that. I it's The details are pretty soft at this point in my brain, but. That's pretty um, awesome. 
So, no, um, I, oh, go ahead, Joe. No, I was going to say last question about California, uh, since you're still living there. My, this is really off. This is serial killers, but they're kind of in my serial killer hall of fame, which would be uh, Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. And I know Charles Ng, last I heard, is on death row in California. Is he still on death row? Did they find together? Because he was sentenced in like 1999. And last I heard, he's still alive. Do you know if they finally knock him off or not? You know what? I'm not sure, but I, I believe he's still on death row. Oh, is he really? Sounds like a simple Google search, Joe. Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose that. Well, I just, I'm not near a computer well, right now except the one that we're using to talk to <laughs> talk to her, so yeah, I can't really do it. Right, I just, yeah, it didn't occur to me until just now. I wonder what's going on with Charles Ng. I wonder if he's dead yet. Hmm. Probably not. No. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think he is. Okay. Um, Christine, you know, we, we've uh, been remiss in this so far, and I'll make sure that this is in the beginning of the uh, everything when we release, but I forgot to ask to make sure that we had given the full title of the name of your book. So can you share that with everybody real fast? Oh, sure. It's The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central. And is this your first book? You've written others. Yep. Oh, it is. Okay. For some reason... No, it's my... No, my first and probably the only book. Well, <laughs> congratulations. That's a great accomplishment. Yeah. I, I, I've been wanting to write a book Thank for a long you. time now, and I still haven't quite achieved it. I haven't even written the first page. But... <laughs> How was the experience? Well, I just thought, oh, go ahead. I, I, I just thought in this case, it was just if the detectives weren't going to write the story or the prosecutors or you know family members of, you know, of the victims, if they weren't going to do it, I just thought, that I was the per, you know, since I had been young, you know, and I just, and I kept, you know, I had all my notes and I knew everybody involved. So if anyone was going to write it, I just felt like I should, you know, and if I was ever going to write a book, I thought to myself, this is the book that I, I should write because this is the one I know so well. You know, I know everybody involved. I know the case. Oh, it is so amazing. That's story. why I decided. I mean, the, 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 the hurdles that came up and the gaps and everything, I kept reading it. Go, I, I really, I will admit, there was a couple of times I thought maybe you took a little bit of artistic license until I figured out. I was like, no, this, holy crap, this really happened. Real. Yeah. Well, I just think that, like, this case in particular, I just thought that it was a case that people should know about because I know, you know, there are, there's a lot of cases out there that got a lot more attention, and I felt like there wasn't enough attention to this case and to the victims. And so I just really wanted to make people aware of, you know, who, who the victims were and you know they mattered their families mattered you know so to me it was like important for that to get out there because you know as you know you know you guys do a lot of crime there's a lot of stories that you never hear about you know and they're yeah. just as important as every other story you know so I just wanted this you know I wanted people to know who you know Deborah was and Henrietta and Bernita and Janisha and you know all his victims so no absolutely you know, there's... that's why I did it well, that's that's great. I mean, we do we tend to like the smaller, lesser known mysteries for that reason, because everybody could talk about Ted Bundy every day, but everybody yeah. already knows that story. And... Yeah, everybody talks about John Bonet, and we're like, we're not, no, <laughs> we're not going to do yeah. that. We there's so many other more interesting cases that we could find, you know, and, and do more justice to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they just never get the attention. So you know, this guy was like the most prolific serial killer you know, in like Los Angeles history, you know, and they should, people should know about it. People should know about the victims and who they were and, you know, what happened. And, you know, and it's just, it's just a really interesting story as well, you know, just from the very beginning. I mean, you know, him being in the military and just, you know, all the way through. So, you know, I think it's, you know, I just think it's a compelling 
know, tale that people should read. <laughs> well, and and for everybody who who wants to pick up a copy and and read the tale, where are where can people find it? I mean, is it an ebook? Is it at certain retailers? Oh yeah, you could get it. It's a new release at Barnes and Noble. Um, you could get it at um any bookstore, pretty much. You can get it online on Amazon. You could go to my website, christinepelisek.com, and there's a link to Amazon where you could you could get it on Amazon. Um, if you're in Canada, you could get it on Amazon.ca or Indigo.ca. I was just in Canada, and I'm Canadian. That's why I'm saying that. I was wondering if you're Canadian. You, you say, yes. like, you know, yeah. You, it sounds slightly Canadian. I say, yeah, you say a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about maple syrup, like, constantly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you could pretty much get it most places. Cool. All awesome. Right. Okay, well, I, we are we are uh, we've decimated this question and uh, list that I have in front of me. Uh, well, we more than decimated it. Yeah, if we decimated. We would only have executed one out of ten. <laughs> I have to keep reminding people about that. <laughs> um, so, is there any any last bits that you'd like to to bring up for folks to know about the case or the book or anything like that before we uh, wrap everything up? No, I I don't think so. I think I, you know, I don't. I can't recall anything else. Okay. I just think that people, you know, I think, I just think it's an interesting story that people should, everyone should, you know, know about it. We and, agree. Yeah, definitely. You know? Well, yeah. it is, it has been a lot of fun to get to chat with you uh, again. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah. And, oh, no, thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. And also, I hope I made uh, sense. And, and <laughs> you I, oh, you totally, totally did. Uh, uh, you know, I told best of luck with sales of your book. I hope it's a runaway bestseller and, I can picture it now with Tom Cruise as a handsome police detective and Denzel Washington as a serial killer. And so we'll see, <laughs> you know, we'll see what happens. You never know. We'll, I'll keep our fingers crossed for you. Uh, yeah, and whoever you want to play you. Oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> yes. I was thinking Charlize Theron. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. All right, that works. Good pick. Yeah, yeah. that works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you again, and you have a good evening. Yeah, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate it. Nice talk chatting with you guys. Yeah. You too. Bye-bye. Right. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.